As many of us are confined all around the world, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast in partnership with Radio Halara, emitting from Palestine. Our ambition for it is not to add to the saturation of information about the pandemic we are currently experiencing, but rather to propose a 15-minute extension of our political imaginaries every day. The concept is very simple. Every day we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. While we are recording this podcast in privileged conditions of confinement, we keep in our thoughts the multitude of people around the world who do not share similar conditions or have no choice but to risk being affected by the pandemic because of criminal policies that have to do with neoliberalism, carceralism or colonialism. We thank you for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone. Today is the 14th episode of A Moment of True Decolonization, our daily podcast while we are so many in confinement. Uh, and our guest is uh, Laurel Messing, who is um, an assistant professor of ethnic studies at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, and who is currently developing a book on military fences and grassroots struggles for land and livelihood in Waianae, a rural and heavy militarized region on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. Uh, she's al she also contributed to the Phenomenalist around the same topic, uh, the phenomenon is 13 with a text called um, The Year of the Shark Recognizing Those Who Reterritorialize re Hawaii. Uh, hello, Laurel. Hello, Leopold. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be in conversation with you again. It's always nice to um, touch base with you. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. I'm very glad that we get to, to, to start where we left off almost. Uh, so I think today you will describe to us a moment of uh, true decolonization, but uh, you you also wanted to start with telling us about a, a current campaign that you're you've been organizing in Hawaii. Yes. Um, so yeah, I wanted to start off by saying these are exceptional times. I'm speaking to you from my home in Honolulu. Um, and, you know, I'm in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, so far in Hawaii, we have 224 COVID cases. Um, so it isn't as kind of you know, widespread as it is in other parts of the world. And this is because we're protected by an island, right? The ocean is a natural barrier um, to protect us. Um, but what I'm working with an organization called Hawaii Peace and Justice, and we are very dismayed to see that the military is still going to, um, planning to, the, to do their exercises 
um, for the Rim of the Pacific. So it's uh, the, the abbreviation is RIMPAC. And they're scheduled from the end of June to early August. And this is the largest military exercise in the world. Um, the U.S. military leads them every other year. And um, in 2018, military personnel from 25 countries participated. And it brought ships, submarines, aircrafts to Hawaii's lands and waters. Um, there's widespread live fire training, massive explosions and destruction. Um, uh, two years ago, they engaged in target practice at Pohakuloa, which is at the base of Mauna Kea, which Kia'i protectors have been um, working to protect for the last several years. So why is the military engaging in these massive war games in the middle of the Pacific? It's to maintain their geopolitical dominance and control over the region. Um, in recent years, they've been really upping their China containment strategy. So we can see in the middle of this global pandemic, which has basically put a stopgap on most activities, right? You know, as individuals, most of us aren't even really able to leave our homes. Um, and in the midst of this, the U.S. military is maintaining a business-as-usual mindset. So, um, you know, their China containment strategy is about promoting the unhindered flow of capitalism tethered to the United States. And what they're trying to do right now is make sure that this continues even after the pandemic subsides. Um, and today, there's been some really alarming news on a Pacific aircraft carrier for the United States. There's been 100 reported cases on one of their ships, and there's more than 4,000 crew members on this ship. So, um, you know, this is a huge emergency, and right now the um, U.S., is planning to dock this ship in Guam. So, you know, I'm speaking to Hawaii, one Pacific colony of the United States, and they're planning to dock this ship with massive infection rates in Guam, another island colony of the United States. And both of us are launching pads for U.S. military endeavors and, you know, their broader Pacific strategy to have control over the entire region. Um, so I just wanted to note that war has been an incubator of pandemics, right? So the Spanish influenza during World War I, um, it was passed on among troops who were in close quarters during the war. So I think if history teaches us anything, is, a, is pandemics is a time to demilitarize, to de-escalate war activities. Um, this is not business as usual. So to kind of bring us to today's topic, a true moment of decolonization, I want to um, just start by noting that colonialism is a form of war. So today I'll be discussing how military occupation, particularly in Hawaii, is a structuring force of colonization. And I want to really foreground that efforts for decolonization must include um, struggles against militarism and the building of alternatives to that. Um, so I want to discuss how people have put into practice a future that prioritizes human life over warfare, environmental destruction, endless accumulation, and also explore how this sort of abolitionist vision, this abolitionist project is a proposition that requires all of us to participate in, right? If we want to draw our 
our strength and our efforts for abolition and decolonization from the earth, from the environment. Um, and, you know, as we can see, our planet is in peril. We're facing this planetary crisis. Um, we also want to address the interconnectedness of all life and all life forces, right? So this includes all people and our relationships with the environment. And then I want to end by discussing um, accompaniment as an alternative to allyship. So how accompaniment is a way that we can all come together to build a new world. And abolition is in integral to these ab abolitionists. Wait, abolition is integral to these efforts to accompany each other in our collective work for decolonization. So... I wanted to start off by talking about a place called Makua. It's on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. And I want to talk about Makua to connect localized placemaking in, uh, in Hawaii to expansive sites of resistance, you know, around the world. So a brief history of Makua is it was a fishing village and a ranching community um, until World War II. Um, martial law in Hawaii began, began on December 7th, 1941, the day of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So during martial law in Hawaii, it was the longest institution institutionalization of martial law in U.S. history. And the U.S. military built fences and barbed wire all along the island. People couldn't go to the ocean. And, you know, today we're under lockdown amid this pandemic. Um, so the governor of Hawaii has been explicit that people can still go to the ocean. However, there's a lot of policing activity happening at par parks and beaches. So you have to literally walk straight through the beach to get into the ocean, but you can't spend your time on the beach. So we can see some parallels between World War II martial law and today. And what gives me a little bit of relief about this situation in Hawaii right now is that the quarantine orders are prim primarily being enforced by the state of Hawaii and the city and county of Honolulu. So we don't have total military control over the islands the way we did during World War II. So going back to World War, World War II and Makua, um, right a couple of weeks after the Pearl Harbor bombing, the U.S. military mandated an eviction from Makua. They told everyone, you know, this is a war necessity, necessity, you have to leave. And that was the only reason that they evicted the people from Makua, because of the war. And then they used Makua Valley for joint army and navy maneuvers. Um, they bombed the valley from planes. They sent shells from amphibious ocean crafts. They used people's homes as targets. They destroyed one of the last remaining fish, fishing villages on the island of Oahu. So the, um, this kind of warfare was not just limited to Hawaii. Uh, the U.S. military built barriers across the Pacific, islands everywhere in the ocean, including Guam. Um, but what we saw in the decades after World War II, despite the destruction that happened in the valley and then the adjacent beach, is that people still continue to um, 
uh, use and have a relationship with Makua as their home. So in the 1980s and the 1990s, communities returned to live on Makua Beach. And they said, we're not houseless. We're not homeless. We're houseless, right? The beach is our home. The land is our home. We just don't have houses. Um, so they're, you know, mostly poor, making do with what they had. But what they had was the abundance of the, the land, the aina in Hawaiian, which means that which nourishes and that which feeds. And they also had each other. They had these interdependent formations. They had their own systems of governance. Um, they had, you know, when I lived near Makua in 2013, one of my neighbors, he said that he was the sheriff that the community had appointed. So he helped resolve issues. Um, So this is a true moment of decolonization. Even though the military at the time still controlled Makua Valley, the people who were predominantly Native Hawaiian were exercising their sovereignty on Makua Beach, practicing, um, you know, decolonization as a lived, experiential, collective repatterning of environmental and social relationships. Um, but what we see, and this is what one of the uncles who lived at Makua Beach in the 1990s, is he talked about how this was really dangerous to the dominant state formations, to the capitalists, private property regimes, the military um, you know, occupation, and all of these systems that were really working to dominate the land and resources of Hawaii to assert geopolitical control for the United States across the Pacific to contain China. China and to contain North Korea, right? So um, the people talked about how, like particularly Uncle Sparky talked about how people who were living on Makua Beach took away the stick of the government because they were showing, we don't need you for your services. You know, they weren't living outside of capitalism in the nation state because they were, some of them were receiving aid. Some of them had part-time or low-wage jobs, but they were showing that they could also live apart from it. So they're living inside, they're basically living beside these dominant systems, and they're remaking their territorial claims. However, they were seen as criminals by dominant state formations. So 1983 and 1996, there are some pretty violent evictions where um, National Guard soldiers from the U.S. military, police officers, state conservation officers, uh, they all collectively participated in the eviction and arrest of the people living at Makua. They brought their bulldozers, they knocked down you know, the structures that people had built with tarps and pallets. Um, and basically the way, for example, Uncle Sparky described it was, it was shock and awe. It was a tactic of war. Um, um, so I'm think this makes me think of the work of Heidi Stark, who um, she's a scholar, and she writes about how indigenous lands are seen as lawless spaces without any legal order, and then um, the criminalization of native people is a way of reducing indigenous political author- authority and to avert attention attention from the settler state's illegality, right? So the settler state is an illegal formation. So to take attention away from that, they call the indigenous people engaged in decolonization as um, as illegal criminals. So the next um, 
topic I wanted to move to was to talk about abolition and abolition as kind of forging a vision for decolonization. So how is this moment uh, at Makua Beach in the 80s and 90s um, an abolitionist moment? So abolition is not about only about abolishing slavery or prisons. It's also about world making toward the total transformation of socio-environmental relations. And it's predicated on dynamic, expansive practices of interdependence. So interdependence between people and the environment and between different people. It's about transforming the environmental conditions that allow society to cast certain populations as enemies of the state and as disposable. So I'm drawing from the work, when I think about abolition, I'm very much drawing from the thinking of Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Um, so I want to think for a moment about how the, do the dwellers of Makua Beach enacted abolition as a world-making capacity, and they drew from the environment as a wellspring of health and self-determination. Um, so they, by doing so, they're opposing the destructive forces of militarism. So this, these abolitionist practices encompass life-affirming endeavor, endeavors um, that include this formation at Makua that built alternatives to military occupation. So I want to think about abolition in relation to Ea. And um, Ea is a Hawaiian word that means life, breath, and sovereignty. And I very much draw from the thinking of political scientist Noilani Goodyear Ka'opua. And she writes about how Ea is based on the experiences of people on the land, of rem remembering and caring for vahipana, story places, and it recognizes this mutual interdependence of all life forms and forces. So the people of Makua were part of an interconnected web of plants, animals, soil, streams, ocean, sea, sky, and heavens, and human life. When I talked to the aunties and uncles who lived at Makua, they talked about their, their, the sovereignty that they exercised wasn't about going to the government, making demands from the government. It was about living on the earth and drawing energy from the earth like a battery. That's what one of the, um, my, my neighbor, whose name was Carly, he talked about. That was his experience living at Makua. And then also people referred to Makua as Pu'uhonua o Makua. And Pu'uhonua is a refuge or a sanctuary, and particularly a refuge or sanctuary from war. So a lot of um, some of the prison abolition groups that are working in Hawaii are working on building Pu'uhonua as alternatives to prisons. And a lot of scholars have written about how prisons are also a form of war. Um, so abolition kind of Ea and Pu'uhonua are both examples of abolition. And these um, practices of abolition are about building spaces that are drawing from the earth as a source of power, right? The earth is not something that's separate from humans. We are, as humans, we are part of the environment and the environment is part of us. We are animal life, just like the dolphins, the plant life, the, you know, the birds in the sky. We are, you know, one of the many species who are nurtured by the environment. And if we take care of the environment, um, the environment will take care of us. This is an ethic that's practiced by many native Hawaiians and many indigenous people throughout the world. So 
in, if we think about um, these anti-colonial practices as practices that are also abolitionist, abolition is a, a way of kind of acknowledging the distinctions that divide us, um, which are, you know, native settlers, civilian soldiers, you know, citizen or non-citizen, but they also yield the distinctions that are dividing us and work across this maldistribution of resources and kind of senseless destruction and work in favor of collective access to our life sources, right? So collective access to land and water and fresh air and stable places to live. And so it kind of Abolition shifts the focus from, you know, a rote identity politics where just kind of claiming different identities is seen as a path toward decolonization to actually fighting for the material conditions that ensures the collective well-being of all forms of life. And it centers, um, I would argue that these types of abolitionist efforts should center colonized people across the world. Um, so I just want to very briefly talk about how the different aspects of abolition are divestment from these horrible institutions like the military that are just engaging in this senseless destruction, but also developing new formations that draw from the power of the natural world. So I want to conclude by talking a little bit about um, accompaniment as an alternative to ally politics. So um, I'm from the city of Honolulu, and I lived on the Waianae Coast, where Makua is located on the west side of Oahu from 2013 to 2014, um, engaging in research, in research um, organizing with the community, and um, when people started talking a lot about ally politics and being a settler ally, it just didn't really sit well with me. Um, and people have written a lot about kind of the shortcomings of ally politics. And it's premised on the assumption that the oppression of certain groups produces a certain set of identity-based experiences. And those who have privilege can never really grasp the subjugation of those who are oppressed. So the privileged need to give up their role as actors in movements and instead become allies following the leadership of the oppressed. Um, what I found is on the ground, things are so much more cop complicated. There's never just a fixed identity-based group to take guidance from. People have very complex feelings. Um, a lot of people, you know, have had a lot of trauma from the military, but a lot of people, particularly Native Hawaiians, have also served in the military and have a lot of kind of sense of patriotism toward their, you know, experiences in the services. Um, so people are actually much more complex than ally politics allow us to see them as. And, um, you know, people are not just these very static subjects, right? And ally politics, politics draws from metaphors of war. So what I found is a common accompaniment provides a really rich alternative that rather than drawing from metaphors of war, it draws from metaphors of traveling on a road, creating music together, engaging in creativity and experimentation and shared company. Um, it makes space for multiple experiences and forms of expertise. 
um, it crafts new ways of knowing and being. So I see it as a much more creative, open-ended and fluid practice than allyship. Um, so I see accompaniment as a really exciting way to advance decolonization and abolition because it enables people to forge relationships across partitions while also acknowledging that we're living in these spaces of confinement, right? I mean, right now, a lot of us are confined in our own homes, um, but also the people at Makua were confined by the military base across the street. But it um, accompaniment opens up these opportunities to practice and craft ecological relationships that both simultaneously recognize and defy the divisions that have shaped that are shaping our world and they also enable us to make internationalist connections right we've been hearing from the left recently about you know now is more urgent it's more urgent than ever to practice and engage in internationalism and um, our comrades at the red nation have really emphasized the importance of internationalism to decolonize and abolitionist struggles. So I'd, I really want us to think about accompany, accompaniment as a practice of international solidarity. So for example, when people are visiting Hawaii, you know, eventually our tourist economy is going to reopen. People, I want people to recognize that they're entering an independent nation, right? The kingdom of Hawaii. Um, and, uh, you know, bearing witness to the violences of military occupation and bring that knowledge back to their people's home countries as, as an act of international solidarity. Um, and I want to make a note that this idea of accompaniment derives from liberation theology. Oscar Romero, he was appointed... <clears throat> as the Archbishop of El Salvador in 1977. And he talked about accompaniment as the practice of standing beside indigenous people and rural people to protect them from the barrel of the gun in an act of solidarity. And this was in the context of this severe repression of left movements that were happening in the late 1970s. And because of this work, he was assassinated in 1980. So he martyred himself to um, the struggles for decolonization and um, for lib the liberation of oppressed people. So I wanted to just close these thoughts about um, the, you know, we right now we're in this moment where the military police state is about eliminating and containing anyone who challenges the systems that benefit the ruling class, right? They're really, at this particular moment, they're really digging in their heels to maintain their geopolitical geopolitical control of these strategic sites across the world. Um, Hawaii, Guam, um, you know, other sites of war internationally. So now more than ever, we need to pay attention to these sites of these spaces and moments of decolonization and abolition of people building alternatives. And we need to find our comrades across the world who are resisting the shock doctrines that are, you know, taking advantage of crisis to entrench the power of elites um, and approach abolition as a collective effort that spans oceans to work together to build an abundant and decolonized future that nurtures and cultivates life and rather than wages war. So those, that's what I wanted to share this evening. Thank you so much, Laurel. And uh, listeners don't know it, but uh, you had to 
uh, to present while keeping your keeping seriousness while I was being widely attacked by my cats <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, thank, thank you so much for taking the time um, to prepare and and uh, and to do this, and uh, best of luck with everything in Hawaii. That's all for today. Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to the Finalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.